If you want to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. And he says, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, it will keep or guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. This epistle of Philippians, most of you maybe know, but it was written when Paul was in prison. He spent a lot of time in prison, and prison isn't exactly the most joyous environment. Yet despite all that, despite being chained, this epistle is just filled with the word joy and rejoice over 16 times. It's talked about to where you should either joy or rejoice coming from Paul. And he just had, to me, an amazingly positive attitude. No matter where he was, no matter what was happening to him. I mean, that is really quite the testimony, isn't it? The thing is, though, it wasn't because it was something natural to him. Why did he have that? It was really because of his relationship to the Lord. That was the only reason. He says, and we need to remember this, it's rejoice, but not just rejoice, is it? It's rejoice in the Lord. And that in the Lord, that is code for because we're in union with him and his life is coming into us and he's given us life. We're able to rejoice. And that's what he did. Now, I've gone to minister in a prison now. It's been about 20 years or so. You know, and I wouldn't characterize the atmosphere in there as one of joy, gentleness or prayer, which are the three things Paul is exhorting the Philippians and us through this letter to manifest and I imagine that the prisons now and the prisoners in them aren't probably a whole lot different. Maybe they're a little nicer, cleaner, whatever, than they were back in his day. But I think the general atmosphere was probably the same. And I'd say if you walked up to a typical person, a typical man on the prison yard and asked them, do you rejoice? Would you consider yourself a joyful person? They would look at you and they'd probably get mad at you for even asking. I mean, they'd probably be like, well, I never know what kind of mood I'm going to be in. Sometimes it's happy. Well, rarely is it happy. It's usually I'm mad, sad, or bad. That's typically what you're going to get. Or if you walked up and said, are you gentle? Are you kind-hearted? Are you meek? And they would look at you like, huh? Just show me where that guy's at so I can take advantage of him. That's kind of how it works in there. Because I'll tell you, when you preach on manifesting or talk to people in prison about manifesting those traits, you'd think you'd ask them to commit suicide. Because they know you got to be tough in there, or so they think, or you're just going to get walked all over. Or if you ask them, do you pray? And they might look at you, that guy might look at you, and he might say, daily, for vengeance. That's probably what they'd be praying for, right? They complain all the time, all the conditions, the hardships, they complain about the guards. That's typically how it goes. And so take it to the Lord in prayer their whole thing is, their attitude is, God helps those that help themselves, and I'm going to help myself while I'm in here. And that's kind of what prison's like. And Paul's around that. But yet he's saying we should rejoice. We should be gentle. We should pray, take things to the Lord. So is that just a prison problem where people have those kind of attitudes and problems? I think it's a fallen human nature problem. Because a prisoner, like most people, and especially people that aren't Christians, they want to be in control. They think they're the God of their lives, and they get frustrated because they're not a very good one, if you want to put it that way. But that's the essence of sin. 
is we want to be God. We want to be the sovereign over our lives. And that's where all of our problems stem from, don't they? If you really think about it, is because we're trying to exercise self-rule. And too often, we live our lives apart from God, apart from really looking to Him and really trusting Him. Whenever we try to work things out for ourselves because we forget that God's on our throne, that's where we or anyone have problems, isn't it? I mean, it really is. But the good news today is that God is on his throne, he is in control, and he is sovereign. And that fact is the basis, I believe, for Paul's exhortation here in Philippians 4, to rejoice, to be gentle, and to pray. Because the only reason that a Christian will do those three things, and the only reason they can and will, is if they have allowed God to be on the throne of their heart. And they're trusting in his sovereign power and his love to handle every situation you're in, which is what Paul did. That's what he did no matter where he was. And then we can rejoice. We can be gentle, as we'll see, and seek God in prayer in any situation in life that we face. So I want to look at those three points today. Because God is sovereign, first of all, we're going to say God commands us to rejoice. And the second thing we'll look at is because God is sovereign, all men should know of our gentleness. And because God is sovereign, we should cast all of our care on him in prayer. So the first thing we'll look at is because God is sovereign, he commands us to rejoice. And that's right there in verse four. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul begins with the most basic thing that should characterize a Christian. And what is that? It is joy. He just mentioned in verse 3, when we read verse 4, that these saints in Philippi had their names written in the book of life. Look what it says there at the end of verse 3. He said, and with other of my fellow laborers, he says, whose names are in the book of life. And then right after that, he commands them to rejoice. And I think the thought of that, I mean, this happens to Paul many times. I, I can't say that he hadn't just planned on saying that all along. But a lot of times he'll be writing about something, and all of a sudden he just gets beside himself, and his heart gets filled with praise, and he'll say things like, all oh, the depths, both of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways pass by and out. I mean, he just almost can't help himself. And I think here he's telling his people, look, their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life rejoice and he's just so excited and again I say rejoice rejoice always he's telling them and that's the way Paul was many times or maybe he's thinking of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 10 who said rejoice not that the devils are subject unto you but he says but rather Jesus tells us to rejoice why because our names are written where in heaven. He said, that is reason to rejoice. Like I said, that is one of the main characteristics of a Christian should be joy. Amen? Paul, you especially get this if you read through Philippians, the letter, but he was a happy, spirit-filled man. He was not a man despite all of what he went through and despite the fact that he lived a holy life. He wasn't gloomy at all. He didn't wear black and a long face. He didn't. There was something about him that would have been a rejoicing glow about that man, I believe. <laughs> like Moses coming down off the mountain. He could be in the most miserable of circumstances. He was when he wrote this letter. And yet he is still rejoicing. 
And as it has been said, joy is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of Christ. Joy is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of Christ. We're reading here, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's not the first time he said to rejoice in this letter. It's the fourth time. It's filled with it. (laughs) You know, the first time is he's sitting in prison and he's saying, I'm getting treated worse because there's some people out there preaching Christ out of envy, some out of goodwill, some out of envy. But he's like, you know what? I really don't care. This is what he said. He said, whether in pretense or in truth, I don't care how they're preaching it. He says, but my Lord Jesus Christ is preached. That's all he cared about. He's like, if I live here, I'm going to be living here for the sake of my Lord Jesus Christ. If I die, I'm going to be in his presence. I'll be that much more happier. But he is what I am all about. And he says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And he says, I therein, because of that, he says, I do rejoice. Yea, and he says, I will rejoice. So he says, I may be in chains. My back might be beaten. My head is getting ready to be cut off. But I am still rejoicing because I know that lost men are hearing about my Lord and Savior. I'm going to rejoice. I don't care what they put me through today. He says, I endure all things for what? The elect's sake. He'd given his life fully to the Lord. The second time is in second chapter, verses 17 and 18. But then at the beginning of chapter 3, he does it again. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And he repeats it again in the fourth time with where we're at here. Rejoice in the Lord always, at all times, everywhere. And again, I say it to emphasize it, he says, rejoice. And I'll tell you, Paul would have been an Old Testament man. That's the Bible they had at that time. The New Testament hadn't been written. And it's all through the Old Testament about rejoicing in God's salvation. It's in the Psalms. Psalm 35, 9 says, My soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. And if you would, put something there in Philippians. And we're going to look at a couple of the Psalms. If you would turn back to Psalm 20. Psalm 20, verses 5 through 9. We're saying our salvation is something that Jesus said, that Paul said, that all through the Bible it talks about that is our source and basis for rejoicing. So Psalm 20, beginning in verse 5, it says this, We will rejoice in thy salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven and with the saving strength of his right hand. And we sing this song, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but what do we do? We will remember the name of the Lord, our God. They are brought down and fallen. You trust in them, they're brought down and fallen. But we who trust in the Lord are risen and stand upright. Save, O Lord, let the king hear us when we call. So listen, he's saying that salvation of God, it brings that reconciliation between us and him, and it brings the knowledge of what? What is he? He says, I'm going to rejoice in that salvation. People trust in natural things and in men and in horses and all of that, but I don't have to trust in that anymore because I'm right with God. I can trust in him, and I know he'll hear my prayer, and I know that he will come and help. That's what that psalm's telling us there. And that's what the message is all about, isn't it? It is. That's the message. And if you would turn over to Psalm 33, a few psalms over, 
when you're looking for it, you see rejoicing everywhere. Psalm 33, and beginning in verse 1, the psalmist writes, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with harp. Sing unto him with the psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise, for the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loves righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. If you go down to verse 12, he says, Blessed is the nation or the church whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He beholds all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looks upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts alike. He considers all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. And horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. But behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. We talked about that and sang that. He is our help and our shield. For our hearts shall rejoice in him. Why? Because we have what? Trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we expect and look and hope in thee. That's the way God is. That's why we can rejoice. Amen? God is there to help us. So let me ask you, is joy happiness? Is joy happiness? I would say no. Happiness depends on what's happening. And joy depends on what? Our faith, doesn't it? Joy knows what? It knows that God will come and set things right, even when what's happening looks bad. People that are just happy and not happy, it all depends on the happening. But joy comes when things look bad, right? Because we know that God loves us and that all things work together for our good, and we can rejoice in his goodness. Now, we taught on this a while back, Habakkuk, but it says at the end of Habakkuk 3, although... The fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, and the labor of the olive shall fail. And the fields shall yield no meat, and the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. You read that, the happenings look bleak from what he said, don't they? But Habakkuk said, despite those circumstances, despite how bad everything looks, he said this, yet... Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation because the Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hind's feet and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. Habakkuk says, I don't care how it looks. I don't care how distressed I am, how things are just overwhelming me at this time. It doesn't matter. Everything looks bad, just like with Job. He says, yet I know I'm going to rejoice in the Lord because he will lift me out of this. He will make my feet like hind's feet, lift me to high places. This isn't where I'm going to stay. That's the God we serve. And what did David do? I was thinking, man, I've been doing a lot of this lately. 
He gets to zigzag, and it's disaster. Everything's burned. All the wives and children, all the stuff is taken away. And on top of that, everybody that is with him is turning on him. What are you doing? What are you doing to us? What did you do to us? Giving us away and have no protection here. And now our wife and kids and all our stuff is gone, David. And David had to do what? It looked bad. It said he had to do what? Encourage himself in the Lord. He had to rejoice in the God of his salvation. It doesn't matter what this looks like. He had to say, God's hand is still on me. He still loves me. He still will change this situation. And guess what? He did, didn't he? He never leaves us in zigzag in a burnt ash heap. He lifts us up out of that, doesn't he? That's what he promises. All through, it's in Luke chapter 1. Just read it with my boy last night. He lifts you up out of the ash heap. He brings down the high and mighty. But he lifts up the poor and needy. Those that fear him, those that look to him, those that humble themselves before him, God lifts them up in his time. Wait upon him. He'll do it in his time. He wrote to the Philippians, Paul did, to rejoice while he sat in a Roman jail. But you know what? Those people knew that he lived what he preached, not because they could see him there. They saw him in their jail. You remember that? If you would, turn to Acts 16. So Paul can rejoice in the Lord always at all times and all circumstances because he practiced what he preached. This is a familiar story, but I thought we'd read it. Acts 16, beginning in verse 16, and it says, It came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us. Can I stop and say this? If you young people are involved with Halloween, occult things going on now, you're going to pick up some spirits that are going to cause you a lot of problems. And I know that's becoming a popular thing, and I'm saying you need to shut that stuff off because we've been taught well enough here that occult brings in all kinds of oppression, and you'll need deliverance, and you're going to have all kinds of problems that you don't know, that you just believe me, you don't want to mess with. So that's just a little aside. I wasn't planning on that one, but spirit of divination met us, which brought her master's much gain by soothsaying, fortune-telling. And the same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this she did many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, to the demon he's talking to, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. And brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrate tore off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who... Having received such a charge, he thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas did what? They prayed. Now, I'm sure they didn't feel like it physically. They were probably tired, beaten, bloody, sore, in pain, thirsty, all of that. But it says they prayed and they did what? They sang praises unto God. And who was listening? The other prisoners. You know what they're singing? They're singing the Psalms. 
And you know what they're probably singing about? The holiness of God, the justice of God, the power of God, all the attributes of God in the Psalms. And these prisoners are hearing this. How God, you come and you ride down in the heavens and deliver your people. They're hearing them sing these Psalms. I'm sure that's what they were singing. That's what they would have been singing. They're hearing this. And look what it says. And suddenly, verse 26, there is a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Don't do yourself any harm, we're all here. And he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling. And he fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, oh, I see what's happened here. I heard you sing and I heard what you said. What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe, commit yourself, throw yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved and thy whole house. Let me ask you, what, or should I better say, whom enabled Paul and Silas to rejoice in that jail? It wasn't just because they had naturally sunny dispositions, like I said earlier. Now, Greg and I, <laughs> he sent me a picture of this friend of ours from way back in high school. Two friends, actually. Well, the one I'm saying, he looks exactly like he did back in high school, except he's grayer and a little bit stockier because he's a bricklayer. But the thing about this guy that you notice is he was like this in high school. He's got this huge smile where you see every tooth in his mouth. So that's the way I remember him all the time, Greg. And Greg's like, that's still the way he is. He talks and smiles. He's just showing his teeth all the time. He just naturally has that kind of disposition. That's not what it is with Paul. It's not because him and Silas have a natural, sunny disposition. They are rejoicing, not because it's naturally in them, it's because they lived and walked in the Spirit. And they had the presence of God in them, flowing through them. They had those rivers of living water, if you want to say it that way. The presence of God was not only with them, the Spirit was there with them, causing them to rejoice. It's the same Spirit that caused the earthquake and the foundation. And the same Spirit also caused, through their praise, everyone's chains to fall off, didn't he? Because here's what it says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So when the Spirit of the Lord is in a congregation, in a person, there is a liberty to praise there's just liberty everywhere. There's freedom, true freedom. We don't have that naturally in ourselves is the point. It comes through union with the Lord Jesus Christ and having his spirit live in us. That's where it comes from. I got a text from somebody saying they need revival. Well, I mean, we all need revival to some degree, don't we? Oh, amen, don't we? I'll say I do. I'll take revival. All of us do. And here's what the Bible says. If we repent and seek the Lord, he promises that he will send the Spirit, the same Spirit that was in Paul, the same Spirit that resides in us that just needs to be let free, let loose inside us. Amen? If you would, turn back to Joel 2. Joel chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 21 to 32 to the end of the chapter because here's what God promises. And notice how he promises there will be rejoicing. And it says, Joel 2, 21, Fear not, O land, be glad and what? Rejoice. Why? For the Lord will do what? Great things. Do we believe that? we got people believing for great things. And he says, Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, 
For the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree bears her fruit. The fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. He says, be glad then, ye children of Zion, and, there's our word again, rejoice in the Lord your God. For why? He has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. That's talking about the outpouring of the Spirit. And verse 24, and the floors shall be full of wheat when that happens, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And who needs restoration in here? Verse 25, I will restore to you during that time the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar, the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you, and then you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and do what? Praise the name of the Lord your God. Why? Because he's dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. Amen. In verse 27, and you shall know that I am in the midst of you, Israel, and that I am the Lord your God and none else. And he says it again, and my people shall never be ashamed. Now that's a promise there, isn't it? And you just go back to the beginning of that chapter. He says, if you'll just seek me, repent if you need to repent. Put me first in your life if, if I'm not. And that's what he promises will happen. That'll be the result. Now, that's the word of God. It's not because I'm promising it. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do that he promises it, doesn't he? And that's the way it's worked all through church history, just like that. So like I said... It comes, the joy of the Lord comes, our rejoicing comes because we're united to Christ and filled with his presence. Joy is not the absence of trouble, remember. It's the presence of Christ. That's where joy's at. Andrew Murray, I thought this was good. He said this, he says, joy is not a luxury or a mere accessory in the Christian life. He says this, joy is the sign that we are really living in God's wonderful love and that that love satisfies us. That's what joy is. Joy is a sign we're really living in God's wonderful love and that that love satisfies us. Amen. That's the way it works. Zechariah 2.10 says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. Now, here's how it works. When you find something that you really enjoy, you want to laugh and rejoice and share it with others, don't you? I mean, my little boy, he's Mr. Jokester. He hears a good joke. He'll sit around sometimes and, what are you laughing about, John? I just thought of this joke. And so what? He laughs, but then, you know, he's got to tell somebody. And if you don't laugh with him, he's like, what's wrong? Why aren't you laughing? You don't think that's funny? And that's the way it is. That's the way it works. You know, if you're watching a team and they make some great play in the last seconds to win a game, what's your reaction? You don't just sit there. I mean, I guess some people do, and you probably would if you were by yourself, I guess. But if you got people around you, what? You get up, you jump, you shout, you slap five. I mean, to just sit there, try and react that way when you're sitting with a group of people and something big happens and you're the one that's like, get off the drugs and you'll be all right. Because here's what I'm saying. That experience you're having on the inside, seeing what happens, rejoicing completes the experience. Doesn't it? And that's the way we should be about eternal life when we're meditating on what God has done, when we're experiencing Him and His presence in our life. That rejoicing, and especially with the saints, that completes it, doesn't it? 
That's why you gather together. You want to hear each other sing. We feed off of each other. And God inhabits that, doesn't he? I mean, sure, you can praise by yourself, and God can meet you in that way, but there is just something special when you have a group of people together singing, and his presence is there, isn't it? It's like nothing else. Isaiah 12, he says this, he says, Behold, we sing this song too, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation, therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall you say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Amen. When the presence of God is in our lives and in our midst, we'll not only rejoice, but a second fruit will be manifested. And that brings me to my second point. And if you go back to Philippians 4, the second point is because God is sovereign on his throne in the throat of our hearts, all men should know of our gentleness. And that's verse 5. So it says, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. In the Greek, the Greek word, it means equitable, fair, mild, gentle, or sweet reasonableness. When I think of moderation, I think in terms of you're not going to eat and drink a lot. You're going to be moderate. But the Greek word here doesn't have that idea. It has the idea, actually, it's the word reasonable with an intensifier on it. Intensively reasonable. You're gentle. It's the opposite of someone who insists on having things done his way or else there's going to be trouble. Somebody that's going to be the letter of the law. Titus 3.2, it says that we're to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but be gentle. That's the same word that we have translated here, moderation. But be gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. And the word is used of our Lord Jesus in 2 Corinthians 10, 1, he says, Now I, Paul, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And that gentleness is the same word for moderation. Different translations give the idea of reasonable or gentleness. The ESV, the English Standard Version, says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The New American Standard says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The NET says, let everyone see your gentleness. The NIV, let your gentleness be evident to all. So let me ask you, how many of you have worked for a good and gentle boss? Or maybe your father, your mother, your grandmother, someone you have known has been like that. And what I mean by that is they will patiently teach you whatever it is you need to learn, and they don't overreact when you mess up. That's what he's talking about here. 1 Peter 2.18, he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those that are good and gentle, there's the word, but also to those who are unreasonable. So all of us that have a boss, or sometimes you'll think your parents, like, man, what they're asking me to do, the way they're treating me, it's unreasonable. And he's saying, no, some bosses are good and gentle. They can be firm, but they're going to be gentle. And that's the idea, good and gentle. 
the opposite of unreasonable and harsh, or as Matthew Henry says, the word signifies a good disposition towards other men. So Paul says in verse 5, if you look at that, he says, let your moderation, don't hide it. He says, let it be shown to all men, doesn't he? All men should see us that way. That means your children, the people in your family, your parents, your children, your wife, your husband, if you're in school, fellow students, fellow co-workers should see you that way. Church members, it's not, hey buddy, you just cut in front of me and I've been standing here waiting a whole 10 minutes. You know, it's not that. Or didn't I just tell you I was tired? Did you ever say that to somebody? Just kind of like, leave me alone. Or how many times do I have to show you this? Or I get so frustrated, they always just want to argue about the scriptures. I get frustrated, I end up arguing with them. So it's not any of that right there. It's, you're a gentle, you have an easy disposition about you. And for some people, they're more that way than others. They're more naturally that way. But this is a fruit of the Spirit. This isn't something that naturally is in us. So what is the big deal about all this? Why does Paul have this in here? It is a big deal because our gentleness or lack of it may determine the eternal destiny of ourselves or others. You're looking at me like, huh? Oh yeah. If you would, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul writes, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be what? That's our word. But be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patience in meekness, doing what? Instructing those that oppose themselves. And why? Because if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. So he's saying that meek and gentle spirit, you come across that way in talking to somebody that they're in sin, they don't understand the scripture or whatever, rather than getting aggravated, getting upset, getting on their case or losing your cool, He's saying handling them the right way can be a matter of it opens the door to where God can move in and give them repentance and get them out of the snare of the devil who's wanting to destroy them. So it is that serious. But what we need to have. And he also says that our gentleness should be known to all men. Why? He says at the end of, if you go back to Philippians, because he says the Lord is at hand. And that could be taken two ways. That could be taken that the Lord's second coming is near, that the Lord is near, his second coming is soon, and in light of that he could be saying that don't be treating people bad. Let it be known to all men your gentleness. Because in Luke 12 Jesus said this, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord when he comes shall find so doing. But he goes on to say, but and if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens and to eat and drink and be drunken. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looks not for him and in an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in sunder and will appoint him his portion with unbelievers. Jesus is saying you need to treat people right. You need to be gentle and meek and mild and reasonable with people because if you're not that way and you got an attitude towards people and you feel like you can just treat them however you want to 
because the Lord's not coming back anytime soon. He's saying, you're going to get snared by that. Saying the Lord is at hand. But did you say the Lord delays his coming? No, he'll come at a time when you think not. So that's what Jesus says. Amen? Think about it. Why is he treating his men servants and maid servants that way? We're back to where he thinks he is sovereign. Because generally, people with anger problems forget who's on the throne. They think this thing's got to be dealt with. I've got to deal with it. I've got to be in control. You know, you get upset. Don't you see what you've done? And the answer to that is, no, but God does. And he will take care of this situation and make it right. That's speaking to me there. So we just got to learn that God's in control and something's not going right. Someone's not doing something right. Somebody's doing something to get you upset. You got to realize he's in control. He'll make things right. And we just need to relax and manifest the gentleness of the Holy Spirit. Amen? You don't see Jesus just blowing up and losing it. He didn't do that even with Judas, did he? Here this guy is coming and betraying him, giving him a kiss. He just, friend, you betrayed me with a kiss. He didn't get smart with him, didn't get nasty. That's the way he was. The second way you could look at that is, the Lord is at hand, as it could be taken that it leads into the next verse, verse 7. Because the Lord is near, don't be anxious about anything. Let your request be made known unto God. The point of that would be if you know that God is with you and will answer your prayers, that would do what? It would deliver you from worry. And Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is near unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth, and he will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He will hear their cry and will save them. And that brings me to the third point. And that is that because God is sovereign on his throne, we should cast all of our care on him in prayer. Verses 6 to 7, Paul writes, Be careful or anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Be careful for nothing. The word means anxious. To experience worry, nervousness, or unease about any situation. Paul says, don't do that. And listen, all three of these things that we've talked about today, to rejoice and to be gentle and not to worry, those are all commands. They're not suggestions. There are commands, he says. So he says, don't worry about anything. Why? Because God's in control and he will answer your prayers. It takes humility, doesn't it, to let go of a situation and put it over into God's hands and not try to control it yourself. It really does. It takes great humility. First Peter 5 says, we sing this song about cast all my cares, but before that, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care. That's the same word we have here for anxieties. Be careful for nothing, all your care, your anxieties, casting all your care upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Now, the word cares for you is not the same care word. It means concern. He said, you can cast all your worries, everything you're anxious, what's making you nervous, what's got you upset, uptight, you're worried about it, how am I going to pay these bills, what's going to happen if I can't work, if I don't get done with this trial sometime soon, I may die. He says, take all of that, all this anxiety, all this nervousness, 
Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He is not going to leave you there. He will exalt you in due time. And he says, cast all of that anxiety, nervousness, doubt, fear, worry over onto the Lord. It says, because he cares for us, you. And that word is concern. If my dad knew I was having a hard time and he knows about it, I know he would be concerned and he's going to take care of me. And that's what the Bible is telling us about our Lord, isn't it? Sometimes, we've talked about this before, he can seem unconcerned. It can seem like my world is falling in like the guys in the boat. We're drowning and they go back to him. Don't you care? Aren't you concerned? Because he's sleeping. It just appears he wasn't concerned. Because did they drown? (laughs) They didn't drown. He more than took care of them, didn't he? That's what he does. If you would turn to Luke 12, the Lord commands the same thing that Paul commands in Luke 12 four times. Luke 12 in verse 11 is the first place, and he says to his disciples, when they bring you into the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, Take ye no thought. It's the same word. Don't be anxious. How or what you shall answer or what you shall say for the Holy Ghost, he will teach you in that same hour what you ought to say. And if you go up to, over to verse 22, look what he says. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought. The same word. Don't be anxious for your life. What you shall eat, neither for the body what you shall put on. The life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, look at the birds. They don't have heart attacks and get stressed out. They neither sow nor reap. They have no storehouses nor barns, and God feeds them. And how much more are you better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, there's the same word, being nervous, worrying, how can you add one cubit to your stature? It's like they say, worry is like a rocking chair. It'll give you something to do, but it will get you nowhere. That's what worry's like, a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it's going to get you nowhere. He goes on to say, verse 27, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And if God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow cast into the oven... Grass that he knows is going to be destroyed and clothes it magnificently. He says, well, how much more will he clothe you or us, his children? O ye of little faith. And he says, and seek not what you shall eat or what you shall drink. Neither be you of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your father knows that you have need of these things. He says, but rather seek this the kingdom of God, and all of these things shall be added unto you. In verse 32, I like this verse. He says, fear not, little flock, he's the shepherd, for it is your father's, our heavenly father's, good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's his good pleasure. Amen? That's what the Lord will do for us. The solution, though, back in Philippians, The solution to worry and anxiety is not medication or drugs, and it's not positive thinking, mind over matter, telling yourself, I'm not going to worry, I'm not going to worry, I won't worry, I'm going to try not to worry, please, please, please. It's not that, is it? The solution is where? It's on bent knees. That's what Paul says. He says, be careful for nothing but in everything, by prayer 
bending your knees in supplication with thanksgiving. This is the solution. Let your request be made known unto God. You said, I thought the Bible says he already knows all of our needs. He does. But doesn't the Bible still tell us to pray to God our Father? And if you would, I know we're turning to a lot of verses today, but if you would turn back to Matthew 6, it's not going to hurt us to see these. Matthew 6, talking about prayer, making requests known unto God. Matthew 6, it says this, beginning in verse 5, And when you pray, don't be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Truly I say unto you, they have their reward, but you... You, when you pray, enter into thy closet, and when you have shut the door, pray to thy Father, which is in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret, will do what? He'll reward you. And when you pray, don't use vain repetition as the heathens do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be ye not therefore like unto them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And you better do it with a forgiving heart. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But... If you have unforgiveness, if you forgive not men their trespasses, guess what? Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It becomes a hindrance to prayer. So what does he say? Who do we make our request known unto? The Father. And where do we do that at? In secret. So it doesn't say that we make our requests known unto men, does it? Does it? So that doesn't mean you can't call someone. I'm not saying that. <laughs> You're in a trial. Hey, can you pray with me? I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about, let's say you got a financial need. I mean, that's something, and people generally don't do that, but that's something we take it to the Lord, don't we? We've been taught that, don't we? We don't have to hint around that, man, you're really struggling this week. And George Mueller is, you know, always bringing him up, but he is the, the best case, the best illustration of all that. And a lot of times we know he lacked money for those orphans because he made it a point when he started, he said, I will never make my needs known to any man because I want this all to be purely God, what he's done. And he never did. He would never let anybody know his needs. And one time they were broke. They didn't have any money. He's got a lot of kids to feed. And they were selling whatever items they didn't have to have. Whatever wasn't essential, they were selling. And they were taking that money, but they were running out of items. Taking that money to buy food for those kids. And one day a woman comes to the door. She'd begun traveling to come to that orphanage four days before. George Mueller and his people got on their knees praying and asking God for a certain amount of money four days, the same day she left. They got on their knees and prayed. And what happened was she got there in two days, but she spent several days before she actually came to the orphanage. When she finally comes, gives him this much-needed money that got him out of that trial so those kids could eat. And she tells him, well, I've been around here for a couple of days. I just didn't happen to get over here. Listen to what he said. He said that the money had been so near the orphan house for several days without being given is a plain proof that it was from the beginning in the heart of God to help us. 
But because he delights in the prayer of his children, he had allowed us to pray so long, also to try our faith and to make the answer so much sweeter when it came. Now, personally, I would have thought in two days it had been just as sweet to me as in four. Uh, you know what he's saying, though, right? You get that. It's like, man, things just, as every day goes on, it looks more distressing, more distressing. And then when you hear what happened and how God manifested, it just makes it that much sweeter is what he's saying. Have you ever had an experience like that? Where the, you pray for something, you get on your knees, and you find out God had sovereignly already sent the answer before you actually got down and prayed, or the same time. Have you ever had that happen? I'm sure a lot of people could give testimonies of that happening. Maybe it took several days to get to you in the mail, and there it is. Because here's what God says. That's the way he works. In Isaiah 65, 24, it says, It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, God says, I will hear. That's the way God works. Praise the Lord. But he delights to answer the prayers of his children. All we have to do is just to trust him. And as the song says, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege. It's a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything. That's what Paul's saying. We're supposed to take everything to him, even the little things. Nothing's too small. And the second verse says, have we trials and temptation? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. And so take it to the Lord in prayer. But when we pray, we don't need to keep, like the Catholics, like I did as a Catholic, we'd go, they'd take us into church, we'd have our little rosaries, and we'd say so many Hail Marys, because you can get through those quick, and after 10 of those, I think it was, you'd do an Our Father, 10 more. Now, that's not what he's saying, isn't it? You know, we don't recite what we recited there, the Our Father, over and over and over, like that somehow after this manner. That's not what he means by that, is it? He's just giving us a model or a way of praying. It's not empty repetitions, is it? Because we know, and sometimes you can get into this when we do a lot of intercession about things. We're not interceding because God hasn't answered us yet, and we're trying to get him to answer, okay, if someone's claimed a promise. Mark eleven twenty four is still true. We pray once for the answer. Amen? What things soever you desire, when you pray at that point, you believe you have received. Have received what? The answer. You're no longer waiting for the answer. You have the answer. And if you have it, how can you later not have it? If it's faith, it has to happen, doesn't it? Because Jesus said, believe, trust that you have received it. And he says, and you shall have it. That's the future. But when we're interceding and praying or whatever, we're not doing that because, well, we still don't have the answer. We just don't have the answer manifested, but it shouldn't be because, well, we don't have the answer yet, God. No, he's given you the answer. That's 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us at that point, we know that we have already the petition we desire of him. We're not waiting for it. Amen. Well, that's back to faith 101, but sometimes I think we've gotten away from faith 101. 
So if you see a promise and you've asked God to do something, it's not a matter of, well, wait a minute, this didn't happen. No, if you've got it, then you'll know in your heart. It's a knowing in your heart that you have it. And it'll happen. That knowing is what faith is. That knowing in your heart is the evidence of things not seen. Because once you see it, as they say, you no longer need faith, do you? And that's how it works. And we got to stand on his promises when, when we do that, when we pray and believe. Why do we pray? Like I said, if he already knows our needs, you know what prayer does? It shows our utter dependence on him. It puts us in our proper place because God is the sovereign creator and we are what? We are his handiwork made to be dependent on him. And why is that? Because that brings glory to him and he is the one being in this universe that deserves glory in that sense. Amen? It's not a bad thing that we're dependent. It's a good thing. He's God and we aren't. <laughs> we're limited creatures and he's unlimited. So Paul says, as a result of that, we should pray with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. How does he say that? Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Pray with thanksgiving. We're acknowledging that we're creatures dependent on him. Everything that he gives us is a gift, isn't it? So we're just letting God know by praying with thanksgiving. We're thanking him in advance, but we're also letting him know that we appreciate his goodness and generosity for all of what he's given us in the past and what he's going to give us in the future, like that song we sing. Just want to thank you and all that. Isn't that what you teach your children to do? Doesn't that aggravate you if you do something for a child or your own child or anyone and they just don't even thank you? And that's all God's asking for, just to be treated with simple respect like you do your own children or someone that did you a favor. And God is so gracious and generous with all he's given us, isn't he? And that's what it's talking about there. And finally, verse 7 tells us that when we do that, when we cast our cares on the Lord in prayer, it says he'll give us a peace. That's that knowing, that peace that's beyond our understanding that will guard our hearts. Guard our hearts. That word guard is like a group of soldiers that surround your heart. And we have to keep our hearts with all diligence because the enemy's going to try to break them. But God says, you trust me, thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And he says on to say, trust in the Lord. That's what gives us that peace, isn't it? And that's what God says he'll do. The last one we're going to turn to, we're going to end with this. If you would turn back to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, beginning in verse 1. And the psalmist writes, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. What does he say in verse 3? What should we do? Trust in the Lord and do good and you will dwell in the land and you will verily be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord. Rejoice in him and he'll do what? He'll give you the desires of thy heart and commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him. And what will he do? He'll leave you hanging? What does it say? He'll bring it to pass and he'll bring forth thy righteousness as in the light and thy judgment as the noonday. And verse 7 says, rest in the Lord. We can rest in him. We have that peace, don't we? When we've done those other three things, trusting in him, delighting in him, committing our ways to him. And then he says, verse seven, rest in him, rest in that and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings 
wicked devices to pass. And look over in verse 23. I think someone talked about this earlier. It says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. And though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. And I have been young, and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. God is ever merciful and lends, and his seed is blessed. Amen? We can miss it, we can stumble, we can fall. He'll never leave us down. He'll pick us up, won't he? And he's not going to forsake us. God's in control of the universe, but the question is, is he in control of your life and my life? Have you committed your eternal welfare into his hands? Then rejoice in his salvation and drink from the well of salvation. Amen. There's joy there. And will he cause, he's on the throne, will he cause all things to work together for your good, even bad circumstances? If you know he's going to work everything out no matter how bad it is, then take it easy on people. Be nice to them. Let's be gentle. Because the Lord is near. And do you think that God cares as much for you as he cares for birds? He says he does. Then he just says, then come like a little child. Whatever your need is, whatever's making you anxious, nervous, it says make your request known to him and then just put your hand in his like you would a little child and trust him to lead you, to take care of you, and to sovereignly orchestrate every detail of your life. He'll do that for you and your family. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this great salvation that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit that you've given us with that salvation that is a well of water springing up into life that causes us to rejoice. Lord, I ask you'll do a work in all of us that restore the joy of our salvation if it needs to be restored, Lord, and bring us back to the place of the outpouring of your spirit that revival can take place in our hearts and in this church. I just ask you to do that, Father. We thank you that you are a God that cares about us. I ask you, Lord, to help us to all be conscious to manifest a good spirit towards others. Amen, Lord, and to know that we can take everything to you in prayer and to trust you to answer our prayers because you say that you will. You promise us that you will. And I thank you, Lord, for your word, for the word you gave us today from other members of this body that we minister to each other. And we thank you for all of that, for being with us today. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.